Thank you all. Thank you for uh, bringing us a little bit of uh, Christmas. Have you been listening to Christmas music to get you sort of started? That's how I get started at Christmas. I start listening to Christmas music, and then after Christmas music for a week or so, then I start watching Christmas movies. Unfortunately, um, there's a person in my house who likes to watch Christmas movies too soon. And they all end the same way. The guy gets the girl because they were in a small town and they had come from far away and he had returned and they had run into each other. And, you know, they, they pretty much are the same plot. But they always end happily, which is good. We, had the, we made the mistake last night of reading a Christmas story. We had this book that we bought because of one of the stories in it. And um, I won't even mention the title because I would hate for you to buy it. Because it's just a bunch of sad ending Christmas stories. It's like, I don't want a Christmas story that ends up in some kind of lame-o and they all got divorced. That's literally the end of one of the stories. No, I'll, I'll take those other ones that the card maker makes over that one any day. Because the story of Christmas has a difficult ending for God. It's a difficult beginning for God, but it's a happy ending for all the rest of us. The mess we've made will be dealt with because a baby arrived to rescue us. A baby arrived to rescue us. God decided to change the whole world. He said to baby, only God. Only God. Um, as we, get, we, we begin today, we're into... <laughs> I get paid to speak. As we begin today in our investigation of this one book, the second epistle or the second letter of John, these are actually pastoral letters. These are letters written to someone. That's how we designate. If somebody says, oh, it's in the pastoral letters, the pastoral letters are written to some specific person, typically not to a church. We call the ones written to a church epistles. So this is one of the pastoral letters. It's written, written to a woman that he simply calls the elect. And I want to read a few verses of it. I want you to note the words uh, that, uh, th- that seem to be repeating. One word in particular just keeps repeating. So this is from the New King James Version. This is how it starts. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also those who have known the truth. Because of the truth which abides in us, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will, with, will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of the Father in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I, that I have found some of your children walking in the truth. As we received commandment from the Father... And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love. That we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. 
Did you notice a word that kept repeating? The word truth kept showing up. Did you catch it? Did you catch it right at the beginning? It's the, the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And I, not only I, but also those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us. To catch the idea that, that John's on a mission to say one thing over and over and over again. He wants to say to this lady, there's something about truth. Why do you bring up truth? Because the deception is still there. The next verse, the verse I didn't read, begins to talk about the deceptions that are around. We've talked about that plastic banana, Gnostic deception that's been out there now for several weeks, still going on. When he writes to this lady, that's still on his mind. And so he's trying to recenter to make sure that she sticks with what she has been taught all along. He kind of, kind of gives us a, 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 a little outline of truth. And he not only gives us this outline as, as just an expression, but it's actually a true picture of truth. Truth is known first. Right? You learn about it first. When, um, when I was a little boy... I was often the flashlight holder when my dad was working on a car. So as a little kid, you know, I'm, craw- I'm crawling under the car or climbing up, climbing up on the fender or sometimes sitting with my legs inside the, the wheel wells of the car because there had to be something lit up so my dad could see what he was doing. I was the one presenting the light, but I had to be instructed on this light business because I am easily distracted. I know that's hard for you to believe, but I am easily distracted. And so I would be pointing the light over here, and then I'd be looking at something over there, and I would start trailing off in the other direction. But I'd say, hey, 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 shine the light where I'm working. Shine the light where I'm working. Come on, shine. And, I, and over and over again, probably, I don't know, a poor guy, probably 10, 11, 12, 15, 20, 45, 75 times, he told me, hey, 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 shine the light where I'm working, because I would just keep getting distracted and turning the light away. Eventually... I began to understand the reason I had the light. Because I was supposed to point the light at the bolt in question. I was the light on the bolt that my dad needed to be able to see with his ancient 40-year-old eyes. And so I learned the truth first. And then I began as it took Heart took part in me, became part of my truth to understand what my job was. You get it? So if you, you learn something first, you're told a truth first. And once it begins to be clear to you, once it begins to abide in you, once it begins to have context that makes sense to you, you know how to apply it in the world where you live. Got it? Here's the thing. The biblical truth is applicable no matter your time once you understand it, once it abides in you, once it has a contextual reason to exist. You begin to say, oh, I see how this applies now. I see how this applies today. It begins to abide in you and then begins to show itself in your actions, in your choices. Got it? Just not not or something to show me that you're still alive. Okay, good, good. Like 16 people nodded. But you get the picture, right? So as he's going through these steps, it's very interesting, the, the, the progression that he picks. He, he starts in verse 1 with knowing it, 2, abiding in it, and verse 4, they walked in it. Their truth was something they were walking. It was something that was guiding their footsteps at that point. Okay? So as, as John is taking this letter on, 
I want you to start thinking of John a little more globally, about what you know about John. John was one of the first two disciples called. Remember that story? Jesus calls James and John. One of the first two he calls. James and John come with me, and then Peter and Andrew are right next, right? So we got James, John, Peter, Andrew. They're kind of the, the first four. Remember, Peter, James, and John are the, the ones who have the inside track all the time. When he goes to do something special, they're the ones who show up. When he goes up into the, into the upper room to, to raise Tabitha, remember? In, the, in Capernaum, she's, the, she's the, the keeper of the synagogue's daughter. She's passed away. And they said, no, she's already dead. They've already gathered a crowd around to mourn. And Jesus goes upstairs. He just takes Peter, James, and John. He goes up on the mountain of transfiguration. And when he's up on the mountain, mountain of transfiguration, and amazing things are happening, the voice of actual God speaks during that period. It's what Peter will remember later when Peter's writing his book. This is the event that he recalls. That moment, who's there? Peter, James, John. These guys get the inside track all the time. John is one of Jesus' closest companions and one who knows the things that not everyone got to know. Think of John globally. Think of John, the guy who wrote the book of John. At the same or similar time frame as this book, he's writing the, the, what we call the Gospel of John to try to help, again, get people away from not understanding who Jesus, get Jesus was, getting them away from the plastic banana fake Jesus that didn't have any authority or any power. He's trying to help direct the people who are at the end of the apostolic age. John is probably the last remaining apostle in the scripture. He's probably the last man standing. As the other apostles have been martyred one after another, he is the only apostle who seems to have died of old age. Not that they didn't try. They tried to French fry him, and it didn't work. They tried putting him on the island of Patmos to just let him die out there, and that didn't work. That brings me to the other piece I want to give you about John. John is the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. John is the guy who in those first, oh, about seven chapters, opens the heavens to us. And we get to see what John saw. I saw and there was a room full of emerald colored light. And there in the midst of the room was one who was like the creator God, sitting on a throne. And around him were four living creatures who cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And every time they did it, they fell, at their, fell down on their knees and they got up and they said it again. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And the 24 elders joined them in falling before God's throne and casting down their crowns. And there was this great cacophony of movement and sound. And a building song starts with just a few voices and rises and rises and rises and rises till thousands upon ten thousands of angels have joined the chorus. In praising God, this is John, this is this guy writing a letter to this woman who is one of the church leaders in her community. And he's just saying to her, hey, I've gotten good news. I know that, that your children, and, and this is probably is not just her specific children. This is probably her children as a leader in the church, those who have come to follow Jesus because of her work. That your children, that some of your children, I've heard about your children, that they're staying with God. They're following in the truth. That's this guy. John the revelator, John the gospel writer, John the companion of Jesus, God, John the last man standing, decides to write a letter to a lady because he's concerned that she might lose her way. 
We have two of these letters. We have this one and the one Tim's going to cover next week. Second John, Third John. Our personal letters to people who are in some level of leadership in the church. This woman is called the elect or the chosen, depending on how your Bible translates it. But it probably means that she is the leader of a house church. She's one of the leaders of a local group. She's a, a, an early for, sort of founding leader. And remember that they would go from place to place raising up churches and they would leave leaders behind. They would leave elders behind to help maintain those congregations to teach them and help them grow. Right? This is one of those people. And he says, the truth, 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 the truth. Because there's a fake. Don't forget, when you read the books of John, he has lived long enough to begin to see a change in Christianity, a change on the wind. This group of people have survived the movement from Judaism and the sacrifice of animals to the fulfillment of the sacrifice of animals in the life of Jesus, who was now the final sacrifice. And now, not by, not by bringing your sins and laying them on the head of an animal, not by the substitutionary blood relationship that goes into that sanctuary system, but now by the blood of the Lamb, who was slain for the, for, uh, as the last example of what is needed for the sal- salvation of mankind. Now they have finished. They've figured out how to transfer that into Jesus. They've left, those who are Jewish, left Judaism, and they've moved into Christianity, and they're, they're kind of in this place where a bridge has been completed into a new way of thinking, and along comes this fake Jesus story. And that's the concern. It's the same concern we've been running into all along. And so he's writing her his friend, but he's not going to write a long book. He's got like a one-page letter to send. He knows at the beginning of this book, that, or this letter, that he's going to leave. He says so as he concludes the, the letter. He says that he is going to come and he's going to say more to her. He's going to speak more to her about what he wants her to know, but he doesn't want to write it down. For whatever reason, he's done writing things down. He's now going to do these things face to face. He'll say it here. He'll say it in the next letter. As he does so, he's trying, as as he's writing this quick letter, he's trying to give her good sort of talking points, good things to remember. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. How do we express it? We express it in this process, in this walking in his commandments. Here's the map, and it hasn't changed. How do you go about this walk? What do you do? This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Do you want him just to state the command here? Do you want him just to spit it out? Because he keeps referring to it. He referred to it in 1 John. He keeps referring to it, but he never actually says, this is it. You know why? Because this is what he's always taught. He keeps saying, I'm not writing you something new. This is what I've always been saying to you. What in the world is John doing? Is there anywhere in Revelation or in the book of John or here in any of these that we actually have the commandment? Is there any way 
that we know what John was teaching. What he'd been teaching from the beginning. Oh, go tell it on the mountain. That is what he said, but he kind of taught them first, then he told them to go tell it on the mountain. This commandment that you have heard from the beginning. I need, let's see if I can do this without changing it to go tell it. Ha, sweet. Okay. If you have your Bible open, go to John 13. Remember the night. The disciples have gathered in the upper room and nobody volunteered to wash feet. And so Jesus stands up, takes off his outer clothes, takes a towel. Now don't think, you know, your bath towel this thing. This is, this is like a long cloth that he, he's able to wrap it around him and have ends. So he wraps it around, kind of ties it in the front, and then he'll have ends that are dangle that he can still use to do what he's about to do. And he fills up a water basin and he starts working his way through the disciples, washing their feet. And they're, they're flushed because they're embarrassed. They know they should have done this. John may be the one who most likely would have been doing it. Because it seems that John may have been the youngest disciple. And if there were no servant present, the youngest was supposed to do this. So it may be that John remembers this night in an exquisite moment of personal embarrassment. That that night, when Jesus gathered us, for the last conversation we would have, no one washed his feet. Why? They had been washed down the road in Bethany by the tears of a woman whose heart overflowed with the expression of forgiveness from Jesus. She broke open a box of perfume that was worth a year's wages. Think of your yearly wage. It cost her a full year's wages. And she poured that on his head, poured the remainder on his feet. Jesus didn't actually need to have his feet washed. That had been taken care of by Mary. And Jesus goes from disciple to disciple. And there's a disciple in this group who's about to turn on Jesus. There's a disciple in this group who sits close enough to Jesus tonight that he can feed him because he does. He may have been the disciple who sat immediately to Jesus' right, which was the seat of honor. We know who's on the left. That's John, because John said he was leaning on him. And if you were sitting on his left, because that would encumber his left hand, you could lean on his left and still have, he could still have his right hand to eat with. When Jesus comes to Judas, a galactic cosmic battle ensues. Jesus is calling on, Ju- on Judas' spirit. Jesus is demonstrating the love of God. Jesus is demonstrating his own self-sacrifice. He is calling on Judas. He's lingering over Judas. Could Jesus have forced Judas not to disobey? He has all the power of, of heaven. He could have made Judas behave. But he left intact Judas' power of choice while using the Spirit's persuasion for all he's worth. 
And he lingers there at the feet of the man who in a minute is going to betray him. Finally wipes his feet and moves on. Jesus and his disciples sharing the last supper. Their last, our invitation to the first. We have this moment It says, when he had gone out. Do you know who he is? It's Judas. With his freshly washed feet. When he had gone out. There's a bit of a moment here where John explains to us that the disciples are wondering. And Peter, of course, says, hey, John, ask him who's the guy who's going to deceive him like this. Who's going to be the one who, who abandons him and... John leans over and says, Hey, who is it? Jesus says to John, It's the one I give this piece of bread that I'm going to dip in the wine to. He dips it in, hands it to Judas. That's the moment when the devil came into Judas and Judas got up and went out. Look at what Jesus does next. Jesus says, Now, Now that Judas has gone out, now that there were only 11, now that the one who was going to abandon him has gone about to abandon him, he's left the room. Now, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. What is he talking about? The cross. This guy's about to sell him out so he can go to the cross. Jesus, knowing it, says, you will now see the glory of God in all of its splendor because you're about to see the cross. The disciples didn't understand. The disciples couldn't have understood because the cross was an entirely crazy idea, so much so that even even when Jesus brought it up, They just kept denying it. Peter actually confronted him on it. They could not have understood this from their perspective looking forward, but you and I have the benefit of looking backward at it historically. Jesus says to them, I'm about to be glorified and you're going to see the glory of God. Then he uses this word. Now, you've been following First John. You've been walking through this. We've been, I've been actually, I, I, I watched through this set of sermons to try to remember what I talked about to talk about today. I am sorry, it was a little tedious. I just kept repeating myself over and over and over again because I was afraid there'd be somebody here this week that hadn't been here the previous week. And so those of you who went here for, were here for all four weeks, bless you for not getting up and walking out on me. But here's the deal. This is one of John's favorite phrases for the people of God whom he serves. Remember? He says to them, my little children. He just said it to her. I am so happy that your little children are in the truth. He's taking the words of Jesus from John 13 and he's applying him to his ministry. 
John is in his last days. Jesus was on his last night. And the words of Jesus shout in his ear in context of what he's doing to understand that what he's doing is what Jesus was doing. He was giving a final word. And John, as he gives his final word, goes back to Jesus' words. You see it so clearly here because this word, this, this particular book is, a, is just a, a shrunken, impactful, concentrated statement. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say it to you. A new commandment I give you. What? A new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And they are about to see the fullest expression of this in the next few hours, next day, hours. That you also love one another. See, here's here's our guy, John, trying to express to the people who follow him, the people he knows, the people who are there, probably the same group that will receive the letter of Revelation, those seven churches over which he is local bishop, over which he is local leader, probably those same churches get these letters. This lady is probably from one of those churches. He says to her, remember what I've I've always told you? The the message I've given you from the beginning. I want you to keep his commandments. And remember what Jesus said of these commandments upon these two things. Hang all the law and the prophets. Love God and love your neighbor. And then he says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, one for another. Now wait. I want people to know about my dietary choices. The good and the bad and the ugly. But I want some cred for that. I want to get a little credit. I mean, Leviticus gave me a whole bunch of things to avoid. And I I want some credit for avoiding those things. I mean, come on. It's the garbage man, the pool sweep. Shouldn't I get some credit for following what, this, what, what was said, for putting oil where the oil is supposed to go in the vehicle God gave me to drive? No. Love God. Love your neighbor. That's all, that's all cool. Glad you're doing it because you'll, you'll benefit from it. But people will know you are my disciples because they can see how you love one another. Well, I want a little credit for the rest of the commandments. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't chase women. I try really hard not to covet my neighbor's stuff. I try not to make any idols. I try not to take your name in vain. I try not to be a fake believer. I try to be a real one. Shouldn't I get some credit for that?
By this, they will know that you are my disciples. That you love one another. You know what? I don't steal from people I love. I don't even steal from people I don't like, but I really wouldn't steal from somebody I love. I, I, I would probably apply all those last six commands right there. They make a good guideline for the actions of love. But the world doesn't care what I don't do. They care what I actually do. How will people know that you are a disciple if you only define define your discipleship by what you don't do? All they will know is that you're different. But they won't know why. But if you love them, they'll know that kind of difference personally. Here's what he's been saying from the beginning. Because he says specifically, if you keep his commands, if you keep Jesus' commands. Now, we know from our global study of Scripture that Jesus was the, the person giving the commands on, on, on Mount Sinai, but it's unlikely that John knew. So how's it working for you? We quote Dr. Phil here all the time because he's got the right words. How's it working for you? How's, how's your love working? When the people at work see you, they say, hey, that gal's a Christian. You know how I can tell? Look at how she loves people. Look at how she cares about people. She's amazing. When you're at the grocery store, you're pushing your cart. Is there a way to push a cart that looks loving? I, I'm pretty sure I know how to do it in an unloving way. I think sometimes the rubber meets the road at the grocery store in the aisle when you're checking out. If there was a contest to prove our discipleship, would our love rise to the top? And I'm saying our because, you know, preachers are just player coaches. We're no, we are, we're no, no superior being. As John is giving this succinct letter to the elect woman, he goes quickly back to the night when there were just 11 left. And he starts to cover. Walk in the things that I've taught you from the beginning. Love one another. It's how people are going to tell that you're a disciple. This is love. That we walk according to his commands. As a Seventh-day Adventist, I feel guilty for not going through the commandments right now. But I don't think that's what Sean's trying to do. John's trying to tell us that the big command is the one that matters most. You and I have met lots of people in our life who kept the rules to the line. 
and we're mean and we're unloving and we're always willing to judge someone else according to their lives. We've probably done it ourselves. Because when I have a line, I believe that to be the line. You know the problem with the love line? There's no line. It's like this squishy thing. We know it when we see it. But an old woman had come up to the sanctuary one day. She walked in like everybody else, except maybe a little more modestly, head down, not really wanting to be seen. She didn't have church clothes. She didn't have a way to demonstrate that she was pious at all. She had, she had nothing about her that made her stand out. She finally showed her hand. She didn't come to sacrifice anything. The lambs were not in her possession, but she makes her way over to the public offering plate. The public offering plate was public for a reason, so that you could demonstrate your holiness by making your offering. You probably remember this story. And God was watching. The eternal God, obviously, but the physical presence of God, who was not inside the Holy of Holies, but was standing there out in the courtyard of the Gentiles, hanging out with the Gentiles, hanging out with the Jews who weren't all that good, hanging out with a bunch of disciples who nobody would have picked for leadership in the sanctuary. Yeah, I know, he's... He's hard to get your arms around, too, because you want him to be more holy and hang out with better people because you don't want your kids to do that. Hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. If your kids were doing that, you'd be really worried. And here's Jesus. He notices. He notices this old woman with her two little coins. Lepta, they're about the size of the end of my pinky finger. They are barely there. They are easy to lose in a pocket. You remember the story. She brings these two tiny little coins. And in my, my mind's eye, she creeps up to this, this funnel-shaped offering plate. And she slides them over the edge. While others are making a big display of dumping coins in so that they rattle through and make lots of noise and people can look. Some are coming with trumpet players so that people can see how cool they are and how much they're giving. Literally, that's happening. She has nothing to trumpet. She slides those two coins in. God is watching. And the God of the universe, looking down from heaven, and the God of the universe in the body of a man calls attention to the people around him. And he says, see that woman? That nondescript older woman over there, 
who's sneaking away from the offering plate. You see her? And the disciples turn to see what's so important that Jesus is calling it out. All they see is the last moves of her walking away because she's already done the deed. Jesus says, everybody else here, all the other people who have been dropping their offerings in, making a lot of noise about it, drawing your attention to themselves, they give out of their excess. But that woman has just given the last coins in her possession. She has nothing left. What makes you do something that crazy? You have faith that you are loved so entirely that you will put your last two cents on God and say, what happens to me tomorrow, what happens to me tonight, is in your hands. When you know you are loved like that, you're free to love with abandon. And when you love with abandon, people see that you are a disciple because a disciple has fallen in love with the Master. We stand here a couple thousand years after John. And I'm telling you, the way to walk has not changed. Fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with God. And let your steps be directed him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that you would come into a room with your misfit band of disciples and with one who had already sold you And that you would go from person to person, washing their feet, holding them up, praying for them. That you would spend these last hours guiding, warning, telling. So that they might hear and we might hear. 
that if we abide in you and your words abide in us, we can come to the throne and ask what we want. There will be pruning. There will be fruit. But we're called to abide. Help us abide. That as children of yours, we should understand the service you gave that night and we should replicate it, not just in the formal ways of ceremony, but that we would be the servant, not the served. In a world where everyone is rushing to the front, help us to see the one hobbling to the line and help them get there. Teach us, Lord, to fall in love. with you every day. To recognize in the cross the glorification of the love of God in the presence of a person like us. Help us never forget that you died to make it possible for us to choose to go home with you. Help us to live in our world like Jesus. Amen.